This is Aisle 42. We're staying in the culinary world for this one as we venture into the depths of the artisanal seafood industry. The heart and soul that Chef Charlotte brings to sustainably sourced gourmet tinned fish is a beautiful thing, and you're gonna love this episode. She's a total wild card. In this episode, you'll learn about her experiences and perspectives in the restaurant world, her take on the importance of seafood in our weekly diet, consumer awareness of sustainable practices, traceability and certifications, her approach as a chef to canning, meal creation and shopping, and flavor scheming and delicious recipes. And well, you get it. So let's get into it. Here's Chief Culinary Officer Chef Charlotte Langley from Scout Canning. Chef Charlotte, having you on this show is a thrill for me. The work you're doing in the seafood community and beyond, it's inspiring. So I'm so glad that we're finally able to connect. Thank you so much for doing the podcast. My pleasure. It's a thrill to see you. Thanks for including me today. Uh, where are you calling in from, by the way? I was meant to ask. I live in Prince Edward County, Ontario, Canada at this moment. So not PEI. People think I live a lot of the time, which is where I'm from, but Prince Edward County. So a little picked in, a little snowy, picturesque, picked in the afternoon. You got your Ontario mojo going on. <laughs> yeah, I got my little toque. Little, and I'm wearing color today because we've had a, lot, a series of gray days. I'm imagining similar in the West Coast. So... You had to bring color into your life today. I was like, I'm wearing yellow. I'm going to do this. And I exude energy and warmth and glowing. And I love it. It's good. On an audio podcast, it's really good to wear color. It's so, (laughs) it just, it it, it changes the way you talk. So (laughs) I'm going to kick things off in classic aisle 42 fashion. And I'm going to ask you, if you were to imagine the perfect grocery store of the future, what would it look like? Mm, That is so interesting. Okay. I would say, because I am a chef, that's my background and training, how I think about grocery stores, it would be the flow of how I create either a menu or a meal, what I'm starting with. So depending on the day or really how I'm feeling, when I walk into a grocery store experience, what I'm attracted to initially will often, you know, kind of kickstart what I'm going to have for that day or that evening or the menu I'm making. So depending on how I'd like to be inspired by or what I want to eat more in my diet, I want to see sort of like, the things that are maybe ready to go, like your seconds or your less desirables or your like more cost-effective things at the front that need to be need to be moved or consumed, because there's so much waste in the grocery store. Waste in the grocery store, as we know, lots of things don't get purchased, et cetera. So I want to walk in and see, you know, what's on sale right in front of me. What do I need to use today? I shop regularly. I want to see grocery stores like you know, you're hitting the market or the grocery store two or three times a week, not once every month. And I want to buy the stuff that's on sale. I want them discounts. So most are not going to be like, you know, risky with my cash. So when you walk in, then I'm going flavor profiles. I want either fresh herbs, spices, and inspiration from other regions. So maybe like a section, maybe it's like an Ikea, but instead of it being rooms and like, you know, bathroom, living room, dining room, it's like regions of the world and or like what's on sale, what's special, what needs to be consumed like pretty soon, fresh, ready, hot happening spices, flavor profiles. The liquor store has to be at the very end. The last thing, that's your grab and go section because you're like in a pair after you've done the whole search of the store. And then spice it, like seasonings because I always want a little crunchy salt or something new, like some kind of fun that's going to add value to the dish, which is like could be a spice or a salt. And then, I don't know, I want it to be really wide aisles. 
So it's like casual. And even if you like, you know, you can cross on the sidewalk, you can look at each other and smile and nod and pass easily. It's not like you're bustling around. Uh, low lighting, like dim, warm lighting, and like gentle classical piped in in the mornings, mid-afternoon, a little jazz, mid-evenings, funk. Yeah, and then with the sourcing is a whole other thing. I thought I was going to surprise you with this question, <laughs> but you sound like you thought about this a lot. Well, I like fun structures, you know, and I like engaging environments. And I'm sure you have your own route at your grocery store. When I go in, I always do the same route. And if someone's like, we're going down the aisles first, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's throwing off my, my flow. Probably because I'm a control freak too or something. But I like to, you know, navigate and engage with what's going on and see what's happening before I kind of make my decisions. I get it. I, I like your comment about wide aisles. I, I don't see that happening, by the way. And, no, and probably not. Retailers are putting more and more stuff in the aisles with pallet drops and pop-up displays. And it's it sort of feels like a maze. But when you talk about the route, I have a route. And when I'm going down an aisle in the wrong direction. It's stressful. I'm really, <laughs> it's, I'm like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. That's what's wrong with us, I guess. It's like we need to act in this order. But I guess like, you know, what's that called? Um, routines. There's nothing wrong with having a routine. So true. But interesting, like going back to the idea of like Ikea for a second or something like Ikea. When like, you, know, when I, you go on Ikea, like you kind of get lost, you know, like you kind of are wandering around in a bit of a daze like if you want if retailers want to get consumers like trapped into a spending cycle make it like ikea like just we can't get out we don't know how to leave unless we go through 17 sections of value add or grab and go fast casual accoutrement <laughs> yeah that's so true for me when you talk about you know where you would start and where you would finish in a grocery store i can't help but think if i was to it's funny i've never asked myself the very question i ask everybody else but I feel like when I'm preparing a meal, I'm thinking about the protein first. You know, do I want it plant-based? Am I working with beans? Am I working with a, a meat, uh, you know, fish or what? What or fish, of course. Mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, where am I starting? What's sort of the the big piece of the meal? And then, and then I elaborate from there. But then, of course, the reality is if I was to walk into a grocery store and the first thing I would see would be meat and like protein stuff and whatever, it might be a little bit jarring. It's not the, you know, the, it's not the safest way to enter the grocery store. It would feel overwhelming. And then the prices of these things can be so costly. If your first thing in your basket is $50, <laughs> that might significantly impact. So there are retailers who figured this out and they don't put meat by the front door. So anyway. Makes sense. I was curious, you know, and I also like the idea of like, looking at something that's on sale or like going to that region of the grocery store, because as like trained culinary a chef lady, I'm like, Oh, I have a sense of urgency of production. You're like I see something I'm like, Oh, that is going to kind of give me a focus to turn it into something delicious in a shorter period of time versus buying a bunch of groceries and burying them in my fridge and be like, Oh yeah, I have pork chops or tofu or whatever in the back, in the back corner. I like that little sense of urgency. I feel the same way. So I don't always take guests back to the beginning, but given my awkward culinary cooking dish pit background, <laughs> I can't help <laughs> but ask, what got you into cooking? Like, what's your chefing journey been like over the last few years? Oh, goodness. Well, I've always been saying this was a happy accident. I've said this for years now, like over 20. I've been cooking for this year, like 2024. I've been culinary professional for 20 years which is half my life. And that's crazy for one, but it was really 
I'm not super academic, like not in the traditional, like, you know, I'm getting calculus, triple A's and all that. See, I don't even know what to call it. Like I would be an A plus, I guess, in calculus, not a triple A. That's a standard of B4 fish or something. It's a meat grade standard. But I was really interested in learning, but in, I think in a different format. So I didn't really like push myself to get to university for lack of a better word. Everyone's like, you know, the classic model, graduate, go to university, become a doctor or something like some version of that not in the cards for me. And really to summarize it quickly was I was in the real world outside of high school and I had no money and I needed a job, but I didn't know really what I wanted to do. So I was like, well, what's a craft or a skill or a trade that I like? And cooking has been a big, been a big part of my life. My grandfather owned a meatpacking and production facility in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I was always around like delicious food like he was an amazing cook my dad was an amazing cook you know it just sort of happened naturally or organically I guess you could say and um, I happened to get into it I went to culinary school 20 years ago and I excelled and I'm not sure about you but when you get like a win you know like you step into a field and you're like I'm actually like kind of decent at this and then you get a couple accolades like a high five or a pat in the back or good grades those triple A's you know it's really rewarding so I kind of fell in love with it. And my version of it today versus what I thought I was going to be doing when I started is completely, completely different. So you started in a, like a McDonald's or you started in a little <laughs> local pizzeria where what kind of uh, restaurant did you kind of break in? Well, I started up in a, like fine dining actually, <laughs> which why well, I'm like laughing, but I, was, I jumped right in because I was like, I also am like, what's that called? A, a masochist, you know, like I just need to like, throw yourself in the most hardest, craziest position with no experience, pray to whoever that it's going to work out. So I applied to a bunch of restaurants across North America, a couple in New York at the time, one in British Columbia, which is where I actually started. It's called C Restaurant. I'm not sure if you were there then. Uh, so Rob Clark, Rob Belcham, they were running the restaurant. And they the, the things, you go to culinary school, which is really fun and great. And then in between your first and second year, you have to do an internship. And you can go and get a paid internship if you're lucky, or you can you know, work for free stage for the season and uh, which is totally wrong. But anyway, and get your credits either way. So they offered me a paid position as a gamanger and I was like, I'm obviously going to take a paid job and th threw myself into this gamanger station at one of the most high-end restaurants in Vancouver at the time, which is during the peak of like the El Bulli molecular gastronomy craze too. It wasn't just like here, cut this carrot and make it into a puree. It's like making a nice, a nice hyssop bubble and this hibiscus foam to go on this, you know, gelled blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't like a straightforward introduction, but it was awesome. So I started there, but why I said it was what I wasn't expecting is when I left culinary school, I was like, my goal is to become the first female Michelin star chef in Canada. And that was like my driver. I was like, I'm going to be the best. Like, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to step up. I'm going to represent. And it was also ego. Like I, I think I walked into culinary school with more ego than I have now, I hope anyway. And um, I decided that once I started going on the path and working at the restaurants and staging and working the line and moving up pretty quickly from graduating from culinary school, I became an executive chef of my restaurant, my first restaurant at 21, which was like a year after I graduated, which also was a bit ridiculous. Like, I didn't even know what executive chef meant, you know, except for what I learned in culinary school is like a description. It was like, this is what they do. I was like, oh, okay, I can do that. That's like a triple A chef. That's like a triple A <laughs> chef. Exactly. You get your little toque. Exactly. You know, and that's where the word toque, like the Canadian hack comes from is the chef hat, by the way. 
and the little like collar and like a little scarf and a little chef jacket. And now I'm running a restaurant. And the restaurant was called Cafe, Resto Bar, etc. Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> it's a cafe, it's a restaurant, it's a bar, it's whatever. The La Trattoria. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. One day it's an Irish pub, the next day it's a three, you know, a three-star Michelin wannabe restaurant. That's not what I want to do now. Not even close. I liked making fancy food, but I think my perception was skewed at that time. You know, it felt glamorous. It felt like that's how I proved myself, myself in the world and the culinary world is to be the best. And these last few years, you've found yourself in the fishing community and Mm -hmm. tinned fish. Now, first off, I have to ask, what's the difference between canned fish and tinned fish? Is it the same? Is it just a fancy word? (laughs) It's the exact same, but tinned fish caught on on social media versus canned fish. So it's tin fish now. <laughs> okay, it sounds a little bit more hipster friendly. So yeah, that, that's tin good. Fish. It rolls off your tongue more than canned fish. But I have seen images of you and a and a hand packing um, tin fishing like contraption. Um, are you like a tin fish nerd? Like, what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a tin fish nerd. I'm like. You know, I think, well, here's my bad joke. I think I've got the nicest cans in Canada. And uh, please laugh. Thank God you're laughing. And um, <laughs> what I like about it is so many things I love about tinfish. One is that there's the heritage of it. It's a very old method of preservation and, you know, packaging something in the peak of a season. It wasn't meant to be like, we mass produce this to, you know, export it all around the world. It was meant to make sure that everybody had food over the winter when there was no fishing to be done. So I love that heritage component of it and that neighborhood component of like communities, fish communities coming together, cleaning fish, cutting fish, seasoning it, you know, canning it, hand packing it, all those steps. But I also love how it can have so much innovation and flavor and surprising depth and variation. Like I just did a shoot that's just coming out this week with um, a company in New York talking about being a tin fish expert. And it's like wine or cheese, you know, like it is in the category where you taste a tin that was canned fresh. It's delicious. It has very interesting notes. It's more bright. And then you give it four years and it's like evolved and the oil has gotten richer and darker and the fish is a more mild flavor. It's taken on other umami components because as things age, they change. So to answer your question quickly, shortly, yes, I am a tin fish geek. Okay. I better be careful with my next question. <laughs> so you co-founded Scout Canning and you know, there's no shortage of canned fish on any grocery store. There's usually large sections of an aisle dedicated towards fish and seafood in cans. Why in the world would you start yet another, you know, fish company? And what was it that made you guys feel like, okay, this is the way we're going to do it and why we're going to do it with fish? Well, it's funny. I found this cat canning sort of solo in 2014 being like, okay, I'm a seafood expert as in I've been working in restaurants for 10 years, specifically focusing on seafood. Like C was a seafood restaurant in BC. I worked at a myriad of seafood restaurants after that like became kind of my thing. And then I became the MSC chef ambassador for Canada, which I still am today. Like this like seafood life has sort of come with me my whole career. And being in restaurants, I was like, I need to get out of a restaurant. Actually, at the time, I was like, I love so much being in a restaurant. I need to find a product that can get to more people that are going to love to eat delicious fish the same way that I want to make it for them at home or in my restaurant, but have it at home, excuse me. So I was trying to think of a way to develop a product that I could reach more people to have 
sustainable, responsible, delicious fish in general. And the original idea, because it was when like plaques, like backpack bags that sort of just hit the market as in like, you know, the first Innova circulator came out. Everyone's like, oh, you know, uh, my, ten- my molecular gastronomy training had kicked into the public consumer market. So everyone was like trying out with, you know, sous-beating. And I was like, okay, there's enough plastic in the world. Like there's way more than we need. So I want to look at a product that's alternative to plastic. What is left? And I've said this joke many times too in storytelling. Do you remember the mason jar phase of like the late early 2000s where like you could get a cocktail, a salad, a soup, you get a foie gras terrine, like everything in the restaurant was coming to you in a mason jar, which I get it. They were looking for alternate vehicles. Chefs were trying to find a place to get creative and serve it and store it. And mason jars are amazing, but I was like, the market was flooded. So the only really thing that was left was cans. And I was like, okay, how about I do fresh prepared canned food? And the idea was to have like a backpack vibe, like idea, like, you know, it's a sealed in its oxygenless environment. You know, it's not going to grow bacteria, et cetera. And you would keep these cans in the fridge. So you'd get like a beautiful can of tin fish made by me, but like you would see that you're grab and go or like, you know, where you buy your kombucha at Whole Foods, be there. And you would pull it out and pop it in the oven or refresh it in a, like in the pan or whatever. And you would, be, you would taste like a piece of me at home. So then I did that illegally for a while. Like, I would oh, I love it. it. Oh, let's lean in. Illegal fish tin girl. <laughs> illegal, illegal tin fish tender. And by illegally, as in I was exploring the marketplace of what it could look like. I'm an, I was a new entrepreneur at the time. I'm going, is the market even going to be interested? Are people going to want to buy this weird thing? So I bought a canning machine. I started like messing around, like freezing stuff and backpacking stuff and canning it and like just doing exploring, you know, exploring the market. And because I was doing it from my home, like everybody starts at their home, you know, their garage or their wherever creating a product, not like automatically walking into a $6 million facility and, you know, running fancy retorted products. They're like, what am I doing? So I was doing, what am I doing phase and quickly realized that the education piece and talking with consumers around tin fish in general. And then, you know what, that was like mostly salmon and tuna in North America. There's some crab, there's some other things, let alone a fresh prepared canned food item. Like what does fresh prepared mean? I'm like, well, it's freshly prepared and it goes in your fridge. And they're like, I don't get this. So the education piece from bringing that to life didn't make a lot of sense at the time. And I was like, okay, I need to come, I need to make this more legit. I need to make it safer. I need to make it make sense. I need to be delicious. I need to have a better shelf life. You know, like refrigeration is expensive. Transportation is expensive. Refrigeration, et cetera. All these boring business things. So I met up with some friends and we, Adam name my current partners, and we decided to take this legit and get it into a safe retort situation, which is doing it at a plant and working with a giant thermal process retort equipment. And we commercialized in 2020. So it went from fresh prepared to delicious. I think our first announcement was North America's most trusted seafood brand, but now it's Scout Delicious Tin Fish because we make delicious tin fish. I love it. And I've had some of your product. I've had all of your salmon and tuna variations, but I haven't ventured into, I think there's mussels and lobster. Uh, and, and trout. Trout. oh, I'm sorry. I've had the trout as well. It was very good. Yes. So, okay. well, thank you. What uh, do you want to give sort of the bit of the rundown on everything you guys are doing? Um, and I've also, as you can see in my background, you saw my uh, your snack kit. So, g- give us give snack. give everyone the rundown on everything that Scout Canning is making. 
Okay, so you you hit on the line. There's sort of like three categories of our tins. So the seat, the the craft can line, which is the ones we launched in 2020, great auspicious year, was the tuna mussels and trout. Those are like those are my babies. Those are the ones I've worked on for years to like make these. They're very much my flavor profiles. And then we're moving into our pantry staple lines. So this is more like to replace or to challenge the tuna and salmon you see in the grocery store. The majority of those tins you see, the traceability on those products aren't always the best. So we are trying to bring an alternative to the market. So we can be like, okay, you can trust us. And this is our sourcing. And this is the transparent you know, packaging on it. And the labeling is very clear. And the ingredients are very clean, nothing weird. And that was sort of like, you know, to challenge that section of the grocery store, which you said you see a lot of cans in the Nile. And then the third one is a seafood snack. So these, sea- these seafood snacks are meant to sort of disrupt even further where you're looking to have a little healthy snack in the afternoon, like a high protein, something that's nutritious, it's filling, it's good for you and the ocean too. And these seafood snacks sort of fill that void. Plus, the one thing that is missing in tin fish really is texture. And I mean like crunch. And as a chef, I want crunch in my diet. I like, let's go in the fridge and eat romaine like lettuce. You know, everyone's wondering, I just want like crunchy stuff. So adding a crunchy topper, like a seasoning mixture to the seafood snack brings that crunch to life. People always put like, you know, tins on toast or chips or crackers where there's not a crunch that goes with it. But I suppose incorporating the, the, the crunchy bits on top of it or into it, you add it yourself, you get all the crunch. And you get all that flavor. Some of the flavor packs you guys have you are just the like they explode in your mouth. It's so fun. It's super fun, right? And you're like, it's well, Adam always likes to say to surprise and delight. And I like that saying because we want to surprise and delight people. And it is a little bit different than some of the others you'd find on the shelf. I find that, you know, I love crackers, but I want the cracker to pair with what I'm eating. So if I'm having like, you know, my jalapeno lime a seafood snack, it may not pair well with a flaxseed cracker. It may be more like a seaweed cracker or like a very neutral rice cracker, actually. Whereas, you know, they are more ubiquitous with this one across the board. It's all the same thing. But I want to surprise and delight with each bite. So lots of crunch, lots of flavor, and super high protein. Because people are still obsessed with eating a lot of protein. Yeah, and what about, you know, you mentioned earlier on about, you know, taking tinned fish and like warming it up in the pan. I think when a lot of people think of tinned fish, they just think of tuna fish sandwiches and sort of sort of very pedestrian quick easy meals but what are some of the other ways that a family uh, even with young kids could enjoy fish in a way that isn't quite so i don't know prosaic i love that like don't get me wrong i love a good tuna fish sandwich i'll crave them every once in a while you know or a tuna melt like you can't really mess with that like you must have seen the tuna cotta wave that caught up in the on the old tiktok there but I would say, like, for depending on like what your family is interested in, like, you know, I make a jjigae, which is a Korean style stew, a kimchi stew, pretty often at home. And I'll just throw in a can of smoked tuna. You know, at the end of it, that's the protein. So you get that like rich, nice kimchi. It's a big bowl. You serve it with some rice on the side. You've got a little, like, your onions and your garlic, your ginger. You got a little bit of spice. It's sweet and savory at the same time. Very filling, very satisfying. I love that. Why not a big cob salad? A big, like, this is fresh crunch free if you're not getting seafood snacks. Like, make the crunchiest salad that you can. Braised cabbage with a yogurt dressing and a little bit of, uh, like, lightly shredded salmon on top of that that's been roasted. Like, there's such variety 
and creativity when it comes to this. I've been, I've written, I don't know, three or 400 recipes for tin fish exclusively. And I'm also really interested in just cans in general, you know, adding cans to your hanging out, just checking out your pantry every once in a while and seeing what's in there to evolve what's going to happen for dinner. So cool. Yeah. I feel like the, you know, uh, maybe I'm not a sardine eater. Like my, my dad is a big sardine eater. And I remember as a kid, you know, <laughs> lunchtime, it would be lunchtime. Uh, I'd come home from school because that's what we did back in the <laughs> 80s at times when you lived close by. I did the same. And my dad would have a, a bowl of, I think it was like, you know, bacon and bean soup and a, open a tin of sardines and get some toast. And I think uh, I have really good memories of it. I don't know if I'd necessarily eat that now, but uh, uh, this is a, a random factoid. I want you to know that your tinned fish was the first tinned fish I had had for um, almost 40 years. And that was because as a young boy, I had tuna fish uh, sandwich and I had a wicked allergic reaction, like just no. my throat swelled up. I had, and I, there was no prior reason that I would know that this was going to happen. And at the time it was sort of, it was like when the doctors did their thing, like, what did you eat? They kind of walked through my dot, everything I had that day and the day before. And they're like, it's gotta be that whatever was in that fish you had an allergic reaction to. So from that day forward, I never ate canned, um, any canned protein at all. And so it was uh, about two years ago when I first kind of came across you guys. I'm like, all right, here we go. And I'm like, I made sure my wife was home and that her cell phone was charged. And I'm like, I'm going to eat this. Oh, my God. Well, I'm so glad we didn't kill you because that would have really messed with business. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a that would have been a bad review. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really glad. Well, thank you for sharing that and also being brave to try it again. Thanks for not killing me. My absolute um, pleasure. Let's go down the path of sustainability for a second. And I know that you are an MC, MSC ambassador, so we can talk about that. But when it comes to fish companies, seafood companies, uh, highlighting where their product is coming from, who's fishing and farming the product, that traceability. And there are many brands out there that say like 50% of our seafood is traceable and they're celebrating that. And I guess if it was zero, that'd be bad. But I kind of, as a consumer, I kind of assume that most or all of it should be, but it isn't that way. The, the fishing world is kind of a dark and mysterious world. What's going on in fishing <laughs> that is making this so challenging? Why aren't more brands B Corp certified? Why aren't more brands MSC certified in the fishing world? Well, I'm going to have to say that some of the challenges are not everyone wants to be an open book about how they're doing business. So if you want to drive the most revenue for your company, there are some companies that are less inclined to be really forthwith and very honest about what they're doing because they found ways to make the biggest margin for the smallest amount of output. There are lots of companies that I will not name names, obviously, but that have such large production that they also get access to most of the seafood. They are majority buyers. They're the biggest buyers. So they get, you know, the first phone call. They're not going to call somebody like myself and say, hey, girl, I got three million pounds of albacore tuna coming in hot. Would you like it? They're going to call somebody else for a guaranteed sale because they want to keep that supply chain moving. But when it comes to sustainability and traceability and transparency in the supply chain. The biggest thing that I can think of that can contribute to it is people like you and I asking for more information in public. 
most people that go to the grocery store don't go to the fish counter at all or they or even ask questions and maybe they'll buy something that's on sale or they're like taking a look out of curiosity or they i think it's something like seven percent of people go to the fish counter at a grocery store in canada i don't know it's quote for america but i think that's about accurate for canada and unless we start asking more questions about our transparency our traceability and where it's come from and engaging with the producers and suppliers of the supply chain that are putting this food in front of us not as it's going to take longer to change so having certain certifications or aligning with B Corp and having accountability and transparency for the company themselves, that people that want to see this change, we spend a lot of time and energy making that happen because we stand by these values and we want to be able to say we are the most trusted brand in North America or Canada, whatever it may be, because you can see where everything's coming from. There's no slavery in our supply chain, that this harvest was caught at this time. You can see that it was audited by a third party auditor to ensure that the stocks of the environment were reasonable or variable or in a good or bad state we want you to have this information because you as a consumer us as consumers this knowledge is absolutely powerful and i keep saying this lately that the power is truly in our pockets and when we inspire people to ask these couple of questions like where did that come from hey grocer or hey monger where did this come from how is it caught you know who what are any certifications associated with it may i see that the more we engage in these conversations the better it's going to be and the more change it's going to make because we, the consumers, make the economic impact. It's us asking. It's not, yes, they've sort of forced things into our supply chain because like, oh, red peppers are hot right now or we have a lot. We're going to put those on sale and everyone's going to buy red peppers. Same things happen in the seafood industry, but really we have to start asking more questions. And other brands, so when Scout started, and I've been working with Scout as the, you know, I, I said part of my mandate for the Scout is that all the wild seafood has to be MSC certified. I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to be able to represent my own brand by saying that it's not certified. So we've made a big mandate and mission to make sure that's that's working. And that's having you know lots of audits that happen every year and to prove that we are being very transparent and traceable in our supply chain, how we're purchasing, et cetera. And then that also just sort of said to myself, guys, if we are going to be championing these sort of things, you know, we have to be very honest and be very visible with what we're doing. So Let's add B Corp. Let's add organic. Let's add 1% for the planet. All these things that hold us accountable. Basically, it holds us accountable. And that's what I want. I don't want to be able to, I want things to slip through the cracks. We need to show what we're doing. And I'm proud of it. And I think lots of other companies are seeing this and going, oh, consumers are going like, I want more information. Or I want to know where I'm spending my hard-earned dollars. And, you know, I, <laughs> I was actually driving on the highway, maybe it was six months ago. And there was this huge ad for, uh, salmon, canned salmon, and it was uh, Oceans, I think. I think it was an Oceans brand ad, and it was like proudly MSC certified. Since I started Tinfish 10 years ago, and I've seen since I've been in this industry, in this sector, I've never seen a billboard that big that had a logo that said MSC certified proudly beside a can of fish. I was like, this is epic. Like, this is change happening. People, these big brands are recognizing that they have to be better in their choices, their supply chain, their management the people that work for them in order to keep up with the demands of the, of the public. So that was pretty awesome. That is awesome. I agree with you. I think when consumers are exposed to the, you know, the behind the scenes stuff, it changes what we buy. It influences what we feed ourselves and our family. And it can be a beautiful thing when that amount of work can be highlighted and celebrated and, and kind of move the needle. Yeah. When I first started cooking beyond the whole, 
being a Michelin star chef thing, I was like, I'm doing the research and I, you know, when you, when we have a good relationship and you can trust me to be your chef in the restaurant or in a catering or your wedding or whatever it may be, I'm doing all this extra work because I'm really interested in it. And I want to make sure that I'm making the best choices for you, whether that be health, you know, environment, social economic impacts that are positive. All of those things are important to me and my personal beliefs and morals. And I will, it's a sword I'll definitely die on. That's for sure. And seafood, fish, these are primary protein sources for like half the planet or something like that. So when it comes to regenerative systems and in general, like wild fish stocks out there, are you hopeful or are you worried about the future of what's coming out of the ocean? Well, I'm absolutely worried as we all should be. And it's not just about being worried. I think it's about being aware of the environment and like tin fish, the ocean hasn't really been like a sexy environmental challenge until more recently, as mm-hmm. in people have been looking at forestry or big oil or, you know, lots of different categories of how horrible the world is right now. And um, the ocean and the water is now becoming more of a frontline topic. I have hope always because there are so many amazing regenerative companies out there that are looking to, you know, sequester carbon, to produce more food and uh in a sort of passive way. For example, like Green Wave, I'm a huge fan of theirs. They do uh, kelp farming, but they also have a sort of a three-tiered system or two-tiered system. It's a combination of oysters, clams, mollusks, but like mussels or scallops. You kind of kind of pick your choose. And they plant these crops in uh, bays and people, you know, start their own farm and they're trying to produce local food from a generative system with no impacts, no hormones, no nothing, no feed, because they feed off of the sea. And... Companies like that are doing some really amazing work. There's lots of them out there. People putting a demand are creating seaweed-based products. You know, we're, we're seeing more of that being produced all the time. So that demand increases the production, you know, the quality available. That's supply and demand right there. And when it comes to larger fish species, there's lots of books I can say for you to read. Four Fish is one of them. But we're so obsessed with only a few top predatory species, especially in North America, when it comes to consumption, so like the salmons of the world, the tunas, the bass, and uh, those sort of categories where I really wish we could look at other species and have a more more of a diverse diet. So when it comes to going to the grocery store, we're seeing from salmon is our only option. That's the only thing that's there or one of the few things that's there. It's really frustrating to me because we're stuck in this cycle of feeding people the same food and we're not giving these larger species a break they need a break. Some species only regenerate or make babies every couple of years. They're not making babies every year. And like tuna aren't, you know, making 10,000 babies a year. They only make a few, like they make, they make less. Salmon, on the other hand, you know, depending on the species, only spawn every one to three years, depending on the species. So give them a break. Plus they're also the largest species that consume the most feed and the most time and energy they produce, whether it be farmed or wild. Why not eat a species that's less costly to you like eating a piece of haddock or going to your freezer section and finding beautiful packaged fish that's in portions that's like portion controlled you know it's four or five ounces you can pull it from the freezer as you need it it's very convenient it has the trait you can have all your traceability on the packaging that you're looking for the storytelling is there you know we just need to get it we need to give it a break and look at more of those diverse options out there beautifully said chef charlotte beautifully said I have a final question for you, and it's it's an easy one. It, there's no uh, there's no triple A here. 
<laughs> if you were to go into a grocery store right now and grab, you know, your green basket, what would be some of the brands that you would make sure that you would have in there? Let's give some shout outs to some of the brands that you love. Oh, okay. Goodles. Absolutely. Sea Monsters. They make these amazing puffs. These uh, like kelp puffs that have all these super fun flavors. Love those for a good crunchy snack. I'd probably pick up a few of my friends, tin fish breads. I'm always curious about exploring them. So maybe it'd be some wild fish cannery options from Alaska would be a great one to pick up right now. Or if they're importing some Jose Gourmet, those are my favorite guys out in Portugal. Uh, locally, I would say Sapsucker's new sparkling line of beverages that just really got picked up. I think they're at Costco now, which is really exciting. Heyday Canning, talk about disrupting the bean category. I would grab as many of their sesame uh, kimchi beans as possible. They're delicious. Who else do I love? Oh, man, there's so many brands. Um, I think your basket might be full. <laughs> yeah, I think my basket would be full. I think, especially with puffs in there, <laughs> like a bag of puffs. That takes up a third of your basket. That's true, but I, I always usually treat a pretty big basket. But yeah, there's so many amazing delicious brands out there that are disrupting the grocery store like the main the main aisles and as tough as that may be right now being in one of those categories i'm loving it i'm loving the innovation the creativity that's coming out of that space so good chef charlotte thank you for doing this thank you for your time and for everything you and your team at scout canning are doing for the earth and for people thank you so much for having me it's an honor there you have it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chef Charlotte. The future of the grocery store and our oceans are brighter thanks to passionate people like her. On behalf of Ethical Food Group, I'm Corwin Hebert, and I'll see you in the future.